I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that uh, things like what I have said a couple times this morning, uh, those are not just lip service for me. Uh, I, don't, I don't just uh, tell you things that, to make you think that uh, this is what I think is most important or that I think uh, is the critical piece of what happens in a church, but then continue to say, well, but if we have a good sermon, that's really what matters, or when we have good worship time, that's really what matters, or make sure we have good fellowship time afterwards, or whatever it may be. I will uh, stand by the point and let you know that it is really how I feel, and I, I believe you should feel the same way, that in moments of, that we just had when we were on our knees before the Lord, and uh, I hope... I hope I was not the only one that just that sensed the necessity we have to be quiet before the Lord and to again in our hearts agree that Jesus is the only answer we have and again surrender ourselves to him. Those things, uh, that's what makes church. That's what makes the difference in our lives. Those things, we could, we could get rid of everything else. I don't want to and I don't think we will and we shouldn't, but we could get rid of everything else if that's happening. Now, I think because if that happens, we won't get rid of everything else. We want to sing to the Lord, and we want to hear his word taught, and we want to be together in fellowship because that's the result of a life that's right with the Lord. But that's what matters. We will continue today with our uh, discussion out of our statement of faith and practice. We are trying, I'm trying to bring this to an end. We ran into a little roadblock last week when we were not able to be here. Uh, thanks to Glenn for filling in uh, for me. And uh, yeah, I think you mentioned at the beginning of your message last week, Glenn, and I just, I want to say the same thing. We've come to the second to last section, and I titled it Submission, but uh, if you would look at our statement of faith and practice, it actually, the, the full title of the section we're dealing with today is called Submission to God's Order. Uh, so that's really the focus of the message. And I want us to see that there's a, there's a really kind of a continuation. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on non-resistance, and, uh, which sometimes is a whole ball of wax, and certainly I couldn't cover everything that, uh, that uh, is in that topic. But this is, in my opinion, this is a natural outflow, a natural continuation of that discussion. And in that way, uh, Glenn, I was just really blessed. Uh, I, you mentioned it, and I, I think it really was true. There's, uh, your message fit in very well last week with, with even that, that whole that whole transition, non-resistance, and uh, Glenn preached last week on uh, Jacob wrestling with, uh, with the Lord, and then this week on submission to God's order. Uh, let me just say this, to make this connection for you, let me just say this. In all of the things I said last week about non-resistance, uh, I hope you understand, it's true, that the chief most area that you need to be non-resistant in is in your attitude with the Lord, Right? Like, we can talk all day long about how to be non-resistant with each other, but if the Lord gives you instructions and you say, I don't want to obey that, that's the most uh, capital offense, if you will, against non-resistance. You should be the most non-resistant to the Holy Spirit of God. That when he says something, you say, yes. And I say that, uh, again, I want to be, I want to be, well, I'll just say it. I'll just finish my statement. I say that because it, it's necessary for us as we come and we teach from God's word, and I want to do my best to teach as faithfully as I can what God's word says, that we continue this attitude of non-resistance to say, God, if this is what you said, then I cannot find myself, I should not find myself resistant to it. Now, I know, I know that we all have areas that we struggle in, some different from others. And we all have areas that I'm sure that someone else can look at and say, but this is clearly what it says in the Bible. And you're like, yeah, well, find some way to go around that, right? So having given that introduction, let me just uh, tell you, uh, here's the snippet, the first sentence from our statement of faith and practice uh, under submission to God's order. This is the, uh, the sort of the introductory thing. Remember, this is uh, faith and practice. So it begins with we believe, 
And then we're going to talk about what we do out of what we believe. And we just spent time before this, uh, last year, going through our statement of theology, which was even further a foundation. We believe as Christ humbly submitted to God the Father, so also man submits to Christ and woman submits to man. Now, I just want to say off the, uh, off the, the, the top of the, sort of the top of the order here, uh, this is, if you thought non-resistance last week was sort of a countercultural topic or something that kind of flies in the face of what... Uh, the rest of the world around us wants to talk about or sees things, and the rest of the church around us even wants to, I might have just dug my grave in a bit deeper today. Submission to God's order, at least in this kind of statement, is uh, not very politically correct, and quite frankly, is turning out to be not very religiously correct anymore either. Nevertheless, I find it a topic in God's word, which means it's something that I should teach you about. So having given all those uh, sort of introductions, let's turn to everyone's favorite passage in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I say that, obviously, a few of you chuckled, a few of you probably didn't really like my joke. And I want to say that I'm sorry for all the times that this text has been taught at you or towards you and used as a club. That's not my intention. In fact, I think it's very counterproductive to what God is teaching. It's for us where we have uh, used the word of God sometimes to, well, quite frankly, to be uh, pretty critical of people. I hope you know me well enough. I hope most of you know me well enough that that is absolutely not my desire. This is absolutely not in direction towards any person or any group of people. This is absolutely not my desire to be critical of someone. I think you know me well enough to know that. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16. This will be the basis of our text, but I want to cover a lot of other ground because, believe it or not, I believe what is said very clearly in this text is represented very well throughout the whole Bible. Now, I commend you, Paul says to the Corinthians, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife, and I'm just, uh, well, I'm going to read it as my text uh, is written here. Then I'll give you a little caveat right off the top of, the, head, uh, top of the, the, the order here. But I want you to understand, I'll read verse 3 again since I interrupt myself. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For, for man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels." Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, he says in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. 
obviously there is a lot, a lot of stuff in here. And I want to not necessarily jump into the stuff that you may think I want to talk about right away. But I want to uh, just cover a few things that I think uh, I can tell you without any kind of shrinking away are really well documented in all of Scripture. Now, the first caveat I want to make, and I'm just going to throw verse 3 up there because I think this is the gist of the entire message. If you, you'll see this verse a couple of times. If you uh, want to know what the, uh, the premise of this entire message is, it's this verse right here. Paul is writing this section to say, I want you to understand this. I want you to know that this is true. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And you notice here I've made a change from what I read to you. And I'll tell you why I made that change. I've changed it to say the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. In the Greek language, there's a word for man, which is aner, A-N-E-R. And there's a word for woman, which is gune, G-U-N-E. Now, that word, uh, depending on how it's used in context, can mean both a man or woman sort of in general or a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. So it, it is translated both ways. If you would look through the New Testament, it is the same word. Every time you see the word man or woman or you see husband or wife in the New Testament, I can assure you, at least as far as I've ever looked and found, is it's, those, it's the same word. So depending on context is how it's translated. If it's talking clearly about a husband-wife relationship, it says husband and wife. If it's talking about just a man or a woman, it says man or woman. Now, in this case, I take exception with the ESV. I'm not sure what translation you're reading this morning. But I take exception with the ESV in translating and what they have said that every man or the, I, sorry, verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Then the next phrase they changed, the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Because I think we should be consistent all the way through. In other words, if you're going to translate gune as wife, it should be that way all the way through. And aner should be husband all the way through. In other words, then, you might suppose, and some people say this, that this only applies, if you're talking about the covering, for example, or you're talking about how this is, it only applies if a woman is married that she has a head, her husband. Then I would say if you want to be faithful to that, then you have to also say the only time that a man has the head of Christ is when he's married because he's the husband. Because that's how you have to translate that. Do you follow what I'm saying there? We have, to, we, have to, we have to be consistent. You can't, in this case, I take exception because they just flip-flopped right in the middle of the same, same verse. They first said a man, saying every man has the head of Christ, has his Christ. But then when they flipped it to the female side, they said, well, if you're a wife, your, your, your husband is your head. I would submit to you this is the correct way to apply that verse. Now, if you didn't like me when I started the message, you may like me even less now. But this is the central premise of what Paul is teaching this text. I want you to know this. This is important for your Christian life. I want you to understand that the head of every man, if he's the male, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you're about to get really offended by what I just told you, look at the last part of that phrase. Do you also get offended when we say the head of Christ is God? Is that some kind of knock on Jesus? Does that devalue Jesus to say that God is his head? I would submit to you, and I'm going to just show you a couple things from Scripture, that Jesus didn't feel that way about that at all. And he did very clearly feel that God was his head, his, his, his source or his authority. Let me take you through a couple of verses. Way back in Isaiah, talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, in Isaiah chapter 52, 13, it says this about Jesus. It says, Behold, my servant, talking about Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, now stick that 
on one half of your brain for right now. This is about the coming of Jesus. And it says, my servant, when he comes, he will be wise. He will be lifted up high. He will be exalted. And then when you go on the other end of things, when Paul is looking back at Jesus, and I read these verses a couple weeks ago when they talked about non-resistance, by the way. But when Paul is looking back at Jesus, he says this about him. If I can get there to Philippians chapter 2. Put my clicker down so I can flip a little easier. We should have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want you to see that while the Old Testament spoke very clearly about Jesus and was correct that he would be highly exalted, he would be lifted up, he would be, he would be uh, uh, given a superior status, when Jesus, when he looked back at Jesus, Paul said, actually, he went the other direction. I think I just clicked more than once. Sorry about that. Am I going the right direction? I'm going the wrong direction here. Let me go backwards here for a while. There you go. That's the verse I talked about. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. This is the one for whom it was said, when he comes, he will be exalted up high. And Jesus, when he came, instead he humbled himself. Now, we could just look to Jesus' own words to see the same kind of juxtaposition of both of those things. I had thrown the verse up there, but I want to actually read a section of verses from John chapter 5. If you're into flipping the Bible, I'd love to have you uh, uh, just turn there so you can read them with me. Sometimes I read one or two verses, sometimes I read a section. This time I want to read a couple of uh, number of verses, so I'd like to have you follow along if you are willing to do so. John chapter 5, Jesus says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to their resurrection of judgment. Now, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. He's making it clear to them, and they're not very happy with this, by the way, but he's making it clear to them that God has given him complete and utter authority. All the things that God is seen doing, Jesus said, you're now seeing me do. In fact, even greater things. Don't be surprised, he says. Even the dead people are going to hear my voice and they're going to come back to life. That's a a pretty high placement, right? That's a place of being exalted. And yet, look at verse 30, the very next verse. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The point I am making with all of this brothers and sisters, is that Jesus had absolutely no problem seeing that God was his head. He did not feel devalued. He did not feel uh, uh, 
lessened by that. He didn't feel cheapened by that. He didn't, he didn't say, this isn't fair. He didn't say, that's not how it should be. He said, this is how it is. All the incredible things you see me do, and yet I can do nothing on my own. Because I am not here to seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I could keep on reading. Paul uh, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. Let me flip to that real quickly here. He talks about what's going to happen when Christ returns. And one of the things he talks about is the last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death itself. And he says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 15, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are under his feet, sorry, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in, accept, in subjection under him. I kind of really messed that up, so I hope you understand that. Let me read the last verse, the next verse yet, and then we'll stop here. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I, I think you probably understood it, but just to make sure. It's saying everything is going to be put under Jesus' feet. But of course, when it says everything is going to be put under Jesus' feet, it does not include God himself. For God is the one who's putting things under Jesus' feet, so that God may be all in all. One more, if you will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, says that Paul wrote to them that he has put, God has put all things under the, his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Step one in us understanding and willingly submitting to God's order of things is to understand that Jesus saw himself in this order and willingly submitted himself to that. Saw no problem with it. Was not offended by it. But said, this is how you've chosen to do it, God. And this is how it is. Now, I want to come then and move to, you see the second section in our, uh, on your handout, which by the way, I didn't even tell you you have a handout, but if you look on the back side of your bulletin, you have a handout if you want to follow along of all the texts I'm going to read. I want to now turn the attention to our submission. If Jesus submitted to God's order, what does our submission look like? And I want to cover a couple of things, first of all. Both of these come from the book of Ephesians, by the way. I phrased it up there, the first unavoidable, because there's sometimes when things are said so clearly in Scripture that we just can't avoid it, right? We can't, uh, we can't do anything about it. We can't sidestep it. We can't say, well, but, but maybe it's like this, or maybe it doesn't mean that. or maybe There's a couple of things that are pretty unavoidable. The first one I want to share with you comes from Ephesians chapter 5. There's more than what I'm going to share with you than just these two, by the way. But the first, in the context of this message today, comes from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. It says, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me make this pretty clear to you. I think maybe this is a part where sometimes we get a little wrapped in the wrong context or going in the wrong bent. I think it's unavoidably clear in Scripture that as believers, as humans who follow Jesus Christ, there is a really, uh, really strong emphasis in God's Word that we should find ways to submit to each other. I mean, I preached an entire message on non-resistance two weeks ago, which is pretty much that in essence, is to say, we will do our best to not hang on to our rights, to not defend our space, 
to not say what I have coming to me is mine and no one can mess with that, to not say, well, you did this to me and that was not fair and I'm going to pay you back for it, but to say, I will submit out of reverence for Christ who willingly submitted to his Father, I will submit to those around me. I hope you saw the, 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 the tension I was bringing with Jesus. Exalted yet submitted. Because it's this tension we have to now wrestle with. Submitted to each other. There's the first unavoidable. And let's not make a mistake. By the way, let me just make, let me just make it really clear. Sometimes we, we dance around things and you kind of say, why don't you just be more clear? Let me just be really clear. Though I'm making a case this morning that it is very clear in God's word that, that this uh, submission to God's order requires us to recognize that God is the head of Jesus, who is the head of man, who is the head of woman. As men, let me just say this, this does not set us up to say that we are now out of the submission loop. That we don't have to care about what our wives think or what other people think at all. Or that we can somehow treat females as some lesser being. Clearly, I didn't even read this, but clearly in Scripture, we are all equal in Christ. There's, 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 this is not a value judgment here, guys. This is, not a, this is not a statement of since this is how God's order goes that now we are, as a male speaking, we are, we are in, a, in a higher position than uh, in value or in, in, in that, that, that we're more favored or that, that we somehow carry more, you know, we're more right than women are. I mean, I can tell you this pretty honestly. In our marriage, my wife is actually a lot more right than I am typically. I know it's probably not, I, she probably was going to say no about that. I've been pretty open about this. God gives us different gifts, and one of her gifts is discernment, which is not one of mine. So when we're trying to assess the situation, I'm usually not <laughs> in the right place because I think this is what a situation is, and she says it's not like that at all. And it's taken me a, a, little, a long while. Actually, we've been married for 20 years uh, as of last week. And uh, it's taken me a little while to recognize that when those things happen, I'm better off recognizing that part of the gifting the Lord has given her is to see those things that I don't see. Because many, many times, certainly early in our marriage, many times I would say, you, you're wrong. This is not how it is. And I had to eat those words because that's how it was. The first unavoidable is that we are to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. I love the word of God because the second unavoidable comes right after that. Look what it says in the very next verse. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For husband, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If the first unavoidable we can't get around, because Scripture says it very clearly, is that we're supposed to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, the second follows right on the heels. And then he comes right back and says, and yet we have to understand God's order. That in some way, when the buck stops or when there's, there's this, this chain of authority or this chain of, of ho however God has designed it to work out, that this is the order that it's in. Wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands should, should submit to Jesus. Now, he didn't quite say that in this text, but he puts it, lays it up beside the picture of Jesus in the church. And I ask you again, does anyone get offended when we say the church should submit to Jesus? I find very few people like that. Certainly ones that call themselves Christians don't. 
Now we might ask ourselves this question. If I just shared those two unavoidables and said we have to try to work those out, why? Why did God arrange it this way? How can he follow up submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ by saying, oh, and by the way, wives, submit to your husbands. Just like the church submits to Jesus. Husbands love you, wives, just like Jesus loved the church. Why? Now we could point to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is after the fall. Sin has entered the world. They've been deceived. God comes and speaks to them. And God says this line to Eve. If you go back to Genesis, God says this line to Eve. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So sometimes we get caught in this idea that we want to go back to this verse and say, this is why it's like that. This is why God arranged it like this. Because Eve gave in to sin. So now, excuse me, now she is under Adam in that, in that sense. And so that's why God arranged it. And he says it right here. He says, you know what? You're going to have a desire for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. The problem I have with that is that leaves us in a place well, one problem I have with that is it leads us in a place to say that it's only this way because of sin. And many people do that, by the way. They say, well, it's no longer like that when you're in Christ. The other bigger problem I have with this, by the way, is because that's not the argument Paul uses. Back in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he doesn't say, hey, guys, I'm telling you this because back when Adam and Eve sinned, this is why it happened that way. Where does Paul go for his justification? Where does he get the right to say, hey, this is how God made things to be. What did he say? Why don't we read it? I think that's the best, best solution. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read these verses to you already, but verse 7, he says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul goes all the way back to the creation story before sin ever entered into the world and said, this is why I can tell you and I want you to know that this is what God's order is. That the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He went all the way back to creation. By the way, let me just make a little aside. This is not necessarily due to this message, but just a little aside. Um, isn't it amazing as we've gone through this study of theology and of faith and practice? I don't know if you've been keeping track but uh, I was just running a few through in my head as I was actually just sitting down this morning uh, going over this again. And I, it's amazing to me how much of what we believe and what we are to put into practice we find taught in the rest of Scripture based on how many times have we gone back to Genesis chapter 1? How many times have we gone back to this is how God created things? And this is why we believe this. And this is why we do this. You may, we may sometimes get tired with people who wants to continually bring everything back to the creation story and say, uh, you know, if, if you don't believe this exact thing about creation, then you've lost everything. You may get tired of that sometimes, but I submit to you, as we are going through this, it should be evident to us that much of what we believe and what we practice gets tied back to that, how God arranged things, how God designed things. So if it's not Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, but instead the creation account itself that gives us some kind of, some kind of basis for this, then, then I think it has to leave us in a place where we say, well, then I can't explain it away. I can't, I can't move beyond. I can't, I can't say, well, God designed it that way to start with, but he must have made a mistake. He must have done it incorrectly. And I want to point us back again to the text that I had just read a, couple, a little bit ago from Ephesians chapter 5, because I think we get a second reason 
Not the first reason. First reason is that's how God designed. That's how God created us. Why did he do that? Did it, why did he do it that way? I don't know. I really don't. Look, can I just say this? I, I think I can speak for some men when I say this. As much as most females, I'm, my aim is to be really honest with you this morning. As much as most females really hate this kind of teaching, there are a number of males that really don't care for it either. Did you hear the song that Eric sang this morning? Evidence tells us, and I think if we're honest, our own hearts often tell us, that many of us as men would rather not be in the position of headship. We'd rather abdicate and let someone else do it. As the saying goes, where there's authority, there's also responsibility. You can't separate them. The second reason, let me come back to where I was going with this. The second reason that I can give you, I think, that it's like this is from Ephesians chapter 5. Because when we do get to marriage, and we cover this when we talked about marriage, so I'm not going to cover it again. But when we do get to marriage, we see very clearly in Scripture that our marriages are supposed to be a picture of something. They're supposed to represent something. They're supposed to, to give the rest of the world an idea of what God is like, of what Jesus is like, and what the church is like. Which I would tell you is the second reason, and maybe the reason why God designed it that way to start with, is because he knew out of this is going to be a picture of marriage, which is going to demonstrate to the world who does not know Jesus what Jesus is like and what the church is like. That's why the husband is the head and the wife is, uh, is, 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 the, is the next one in the order. If I could, I'm not sure how I was going to say well, I'm not sure what I was going to say there. Why the husband is the head and the wife is, is, comes after that is because we see in those verses that are in Ephesians chapter 5 is that's what God is intending to show the world. That Jesus loved and gave himself for the church and the church submits willingly to Jesus. Or to Jesus. And our marriages are supposed to be a picture of that. That, my friends, is a high bar. Well, let's keep going because we're going to run out of time here. When I have a number of slides, then it takes us a long time to get through Let's come back to our text now, back to specifically this text, because I, I, I want to give us a, a basis from the Word of God that Jesus uh, completely saw the order that God had designed things and said, I'm, I'm part of that, I'm willing to go in the, where I'm supposed to be, and that we ourselves should see the same thing from Scripture. I want us to see now as we come back to chapter 11 in uh, 1 Corinthians, well, first I want us to see that this is not a new subject that Paul is opening up. Now, maybe the specifics of it are, but it's not a new subject that Paul is opening up when he talks about submission. He's not writing 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, and in the 11th chapter, all of a sudden said, hey, you know what? I gotta make sure these people know something about submission too. So let's talk about husbands and wives and man and woman, and let's talk about submission stuff. He is talking about submission all the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Take a quick trip. If you have 1 Corinthians open, take a quick trip with me. I'm not going to read a lot of things here, but um, when we get to uh, something like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, and he talks about sexual immorality, then he talks about submitting to the knowledge that God's temple is in our body, and our body is God's temple, I should say, and that we are not our own, we were bought at a price, so we should glorify God with our body. That's actually uh, just a nice way of saying we should submit to him. You should submit to God because you don't own yourself. You're not in charge of your, your, your body. Christ paid for that. It doesn't belong to you. 
In chapter 7, he begins to talk about marriage. And in that, in verse 17, he says this interesting phrase, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and that to which God has called him. Again, this theme of submission. You know, many times we're not happy with our lot in life, and yet he says, hey, submitting to God, understanding submission to God means that I don't always get to choose. God has called me to live the life this way and assigned it, and I'm going to say I am content with that. In chapter 8, he goes on and starts talking about food sacrifice to idols. And he has a similar refrain. This time, not so much with us and God, but with each other. He says, you know, when we're talking about food sacrifice to idols, it, it doesn't mean anything. You can eat whatever you want. However, you should not ever cause offense to someone by what you do. So submit. That's not a lot like submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ, right? In verse 9, he actually, or chapter 9, he actually comes right out and says that. I will surrender my rights. I'm free. I can do what I want to in, in many respects. From the, certainly from the Jewish law and from other things that people hold. To, but he said, I will not do that if it causes someone to stumble. He says in verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. In chapter 2, he talks about idolatry and how we can lead people astray in idolatry and how, how even idols ourselves, they lead us astray and we're supposed to do everything for the glory of God. And he closes all of that stuff this is now the end of chapter 10, by saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. My friends, this is the entire letter is written to the Corinthians to say, I want you to be thinking about this word submission and what it means to submit to God and what it means to submit to each other. By the way, the very next verse out of that, which for us is chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, I want you to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now that's very key. I just spent some time this morning telling you that Jesus Christ willingly submitted to God's order. And he says, brothers and sisters, I want you to imitate me as I am imitating Christ. Uh, by the way, if you would keep reading the book of 1 Corinthians, he's not done talking about submission yet with this text. Right after this, he talks about the Lord's Supper, and guess what he talks about? Hey, submit to each other. Some of you are going ahead and getting there and just eating and not waiting for everyone else. Submit to each other. In uh, chapter 12, he starts to talk about the spiritual gifts, and his entire picture of the human body as our spiritual gifts and how we're formed together is a picture of submission to each other. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Chapter 14, of course, we know chapter 13. Chapter 14, he starts talking about prophecy and tongues, and he talks about uh, orderly worship and what you do when you get together to have church with each other. And guess what the theme is? Submit to each other. When one of you starts talking and someone else has a word from the Lord, then the first person should sit down and be quiet so the second can talk. But everything should be done in order. This is not a new theme. He did not pull verses 2 through 16 out of chapter 11 and be like, hey, I'm going to talk about this thing about submitting to God's order and the whole rest of the letters about other stuff. But here's this thing that I want to really bring out to you. Let's not be, struck, let's not be pulled aside by that. But let's pay attention to our text here now because I, I want to make sure we come back to what I've been saying. Here's the, here's the point. I've said this a couple times already. All the things, you know, we're gonna, we have to pay some attention to uh, what he used, the words he uses then and and uh, I have not even yet mentioned, you know, wearing a covering, which is usually everyone's ouchy buzzword. Uh, but I'm, we have to get there. Because when he says, I want you to know that every, uh, the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. He then goes on to say, what he began, by the way, is he's saying, I'm commending you because you're following the things I've delivered to you. 
which I submit to you, those things he delivered included that in the Christian church, the female should be covered and the male should not. Countercultural to the Jewish tradition, by the way, of males being covered. Females also probably were, but. And also countercultural, despite what we lots of times would like to try to say, countercultural to what the rest of the world around them was doing when many times females were not covered, but sometimes they were. What he is trying to, by the way, I, I did a little, uh, a little listening uh, to some, uh, some guy who researched the early church. And he says, interesting in their writings, it's around uh, 300 AD, interesting in their writings, they actually don't address the covering very much. But when it is addressed, it's very clear that's what all the churches were doing. Like it wasn't a discussion whether they should do it or not. Like they were all doing it, all the Christian churches. This is what he's saying. I'm commending you because you're, you're doing what I shared with you to, to do. And that's why he's going to follow by saying, but I want you to know this. Like don't, don't do it because you have to, because it's tradition or because that's how it's always been done. I want you to understand why you do what you're doing. Again, the whole letter is about submission. The one question they had, by the way, that did come up in the early church fathers, there was the question about whether uh, unmarried uh, women should, should be covered or not. Same question. That's why we have these words in here, that, and I told you how I feel about it, so you feel free to disagree with me. That was uh, one of the early church fathers. Uh, by the way, he said they should, but it was, I mean, that, that was a question they were having, is whether the virgins, the unmarried women, should be covered as well, or whether this is only addressing uh, husbands and wives. Nevertheless, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And he says, to show that we understand it that way, and to show that we're willing to submit as Jesus submitted to God, that we're willing to submit to that order, he says, that is why every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered is dishonoring his head. Now, I read to you verse 7, which says, that's true because man was created in the image and glory of God. He's representing Jesus. He's representing God, actually. You may not like that language. I may not feel very comfortable with that language. It doesn't change that that's what the Bible says is true. Therefore, if he is covered, he is dishonoring because there is no one that covers God. Nothing that covers God. He goes on to say in the very next verse, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For she is standing in, I would tell you this, now catch, she is standing in for all of humanity, for the church certainly, in how she submits to Jesus. If the man is to represent Jesus, then the woman is to represent the church. And the church should always be covered, which signifies yielding, submitted, when she prays or prophesies. This is the outcome of what he says I want you to understand. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And to show that, a man should be uncovered when praying or prophesying, so he does not dishonor his head, Jesus. And a woman should be covered so she does not dishonor her head. I'm sure you have lots of questions. Let me make a few comments in closing here yet. 
I want to be upfront with you that some of these comments that, that I'm going to give you, I just I want to I want to just be upfront with you. They're my interpretations or my where I think the text is at, what I think the heart of what, what the teaching of scripture is at, and I'm sure there are places that some of you might have disagreement with me on. The first is this. I think it's very clear in the text that when he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, it's very clear that when he says praying and prophesying, that he's, there's a reason why he says that. In other words, I personally don't believe that this is a necessity for every moment of your life. I know people differ on that. I'll just be upfront about that. I certainly have no problem if women want to be covered all the time. I think it's, it's a good practice. There's a reason he says it. He's, now, you can, get, you can get caught up in this stuff, so I want to be careful that I don't, I don't justify too much by just by what I'm saying. But there's a, there's a sense where he's talking about how this is affecting other people, when you're around other people, that that's why it's impo- when it's important. So if you're asking for my interpretation of that, I think it makes a lot of sense that when a woman prays or prophesies, certainly in a public or corporate worship setting, she should be covered. You might point out to me, and I think you'd be correct in saying, that that means women can pray and prophesy in public or in corporate settings. I think they should well be able to. I think it's important in those settings because there's people around. And we want to know that we understand what this principle is. And we're submitted that when I'm speaking, I'm not speaking out of my own authority. I'm doing the same thing, by the way, when I'm uncovering my head. I'm saying when I'm speaking, it's not under my authority. I'm speaking under the authority of Christ. I know we get a little wrapped up about this because, and it does seem unfair to many of us, that it's the women who have to have the sign and us that don't have. Again, I, 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 can't, I can't soften that blow for you. I don't, I don't know how to. It is what it says. So that's my opinion. I think I can defend it from, from the text here. Um, maybe you have other opinions. That's fine. I think it's important when you're in a, any kind of public setting. I think what I actually, it's been a number of years. I think it was maybe five years ago already now. I did a series called The Tough Topics. You might remember that. And I actually addressed the same issue at that time. And, and at that point, I think I made this statement that I said, you know, for me, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And this will get into the next point a little bit. But it makes a lot of sense for a woman to have some kind of covering available so that even when she is in public and, and she has an opportunity to, to speak uh, truth to someone or to pray for someone, that she can cover herself, even if she hasn't been up to that point. Uh, can I just say this? I do not think for a second that if you are a female and you don't have your head covered and you are praying, like in your house or you're praying somewhere, that God does not hear you. I also, by the way, just happen to think that uh, you make a big mistake if you throw all that away then and say, well, then I don't have to. Because I think there's a reason it's said. Certainly, again, I'll say it again, when we are in corporate or public worship settings, I believe this text teaches pretty clearly that's how it should be. Uncovered heads for males, covered heads for females. The next uh, kind of comment I want to make is about this word katakalupto. That's the word for covering everywhere throughout this text with the exception of verse 15. So every place where the Bible, uh, where this text talks about being covered, it uh, uses the word katakalupto. Kata means down, kalupto means a covering. 
So it's the sense of being fully or wholly covered. Uh, by the way, if you want a reference, the noun that's based on this word, katakalupto, is the word kaluma. That's the noun that comes off of this verb. The, this is the verb, by the way. The verb is to be covered. The noun that's based on that is the word kaluma. It is used in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians when he talks about Moses going up on the mountain and spending time with God and coming back down. And then the presence and the glory of God was so rich on his face and so bright that they asked him to do what? To be veiled, to be covered. It's this word right here. So ask yourself, now I, 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 you know my, my heart. I, I'm not trying to be critical or, or I'm, not, I, I'm not legalistic by any sense of the word. But ask yourself what kind of covering that was. How did they cover Moses' face? I don't actually know for sure. But it gives us a picture of what this word is trying to point out to us. I think, again, five years ago I said, if you want to picture this word, I think you're a lot closer. And this may draw some, some fire. You're a lot closer thinking of a hijab than you are thinking of a little round doily on your head. To be fully covered. Again, I'm not here to pick fights. I don't, I'm not here to, to say this. I mean, I, you know me. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm full of grace. I give people a lot of latitude. I told you I'm going to give you a few of my comments. There's a verse in there that talks about the wife or the woman, I would say, having a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. There's some discussion about what this verse means. Uh, if you notice, it comes right on the heels of saying that man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And so many Bible scholars take that verse and say, go back to Genesis chapter 6. You read as the increasing evil was coming upon the world, that the sons of God came down and married the women, human women. And you may say, I'm not sure what's going on there. But a lot of people will look at this verse and say, that's what that's talking about, is to recognize that, that woman was made for man not for fallen angels. That's what those, that's referring to. Not for fallen angels. Woman was made for man to be his counterpart. Remember the whole story of creation, right? We still know this, right? But for Adam, no suitable helper could be found, so God created Eve. Woman was made for man, not for fallen angels. And so, therefore, the woman should have that symbol of authority, that symbol of headship, of, of knowing where she belongs as a sign to fallen angels that I am not, uh, I'm not here for you. You can have other discussions about that, by the way. It also talks about having uh, the, the symbol of authority, and the exousia, privilege, right, authority. That's what that word means. And again, I, I point out to you that I think it's important in a public worship setting that that, that symbol is, is there to, to know what authority she speaks from. All right, let me do one more. And again, I realize I'm probably uh, drawing some disagreements from some people. Many people look at the last part of this text and say, well, it's very clear that, that Paul is talking about long hair. The funny thing for me about that whole thing is, to me, this whole text is very clear that Paul is not talking about long hair. In fact, I think he's making the exact opposite point. He does bring in long hair for a woman, and he does actually call it a covering, although he doesn't, I mean, I wish the English language would not do this. I told you that the word katakalupto is used in every single case throughout this whole text, the exception being in verse 15. Her hair is given to her as a covering. 
That word means to be thrown around. It does, by the way, mean covering. So I'm not taking exception with how they translate it. It does mean covering. I believe the reason Paul used a different word is because he wants to distinguish that he's not talking about the covering stuff he's talking about. He's actually talking about as an example. You see, sometimes I've even had people take this, and maybe you're one of those, and maybe you don't like that I'm going to say what I'm going to say next. But many people look at verse 13 and say, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And say, well, that, Paul just gave you a license. You can decide yourself. What do you want to do? And I ask you, how many times in God's word does it say that in other places? That Well, you decide. You know, here's what I think. But you decide what it says. You do whatever you want to. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think he's employing the tactic that we know as a rhetorical question. The answer is implied. And he goes right on to say, I tell you why the answer is implied. It's implied. Doesn't nature itself teach that a man should have long hair and a woman should have, I'm sorry, a man should have short hair. I just said that backwards. And a woman should have long hair. He's pointing at all the cultures around who have all kinds of differences and yet fairly universally, now it's changed a lot, right? But fairly universally, you've seen that that's how it is. Men wear their hair short, women wear their hair long. And he's pointing that as an example and saying, that stands in to show you that's just how we understand things. And in that same way that you just understand this, you just understand that this is how God ordained things and that's why I do it this way. By the way, I think also for consistency's sake, if you're going to talk about the long hair being the covering, I'm sorry if I'm boring people in drawing this out, but if you're going to talk about the long hair being the covering, it doesn't really make sense in the first verses when you read about that. If a woman will not have long hair, then she should cut her hair short. Isn't that kind of self-explanatory? If she doesn't have long hair, it's already cut short. Why would he say that? If her long hair is given to her as a covering, as in the kind of covering he's talking about, the catacalupto, then she should cut her hair short. Well, the point is she already has short hair, right? I don't think you can make it make a consistent case. Now, I've probably made a fair number of enemies this morning. I tell you I'm sorry about that because I often use that phrase, although I'm not because I believe it's my duty to teach the Word of God and it's what I think the Word of God is saying. I'm going to come one more time because the key, we get all caught up in coverings and not coverings and all kinds of other things and what it looks like and whether we have to have them and all this stuff and it has divided us and has made people angry and has made people bitter and has said I'm done with this and has people chased people away from the church and all this kind of stuff. I want to come back to you. I will not move from the fact that in this text and not just in this text but what I shared otherwise throughout the Bible that there's a point being made that we should understand. I want us to know that the head of Every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And why did God do it that way? I don't know. Is it what I always like? Absolutely not. Have we wrongly applied this stuff many times? Absolutely. Have we taken it as a license of sin? Absolutely. That does not change the fact that that's what God's Word teaches. Let me, by the way, just uh, so you know where we're at officially as a church, if there's a question about this, because I think I've probably come across pretty strongly this morning. Let me just read the rest of our statement in our statement of faith and practice. I read the first line to start with, that we believe as Christ humbly submitted to God the Father, so also man submits to Christ, woman submits to man. Here's what the rest of it says. Submission is primarily an attitude of the heart and spirit. Please don't miss that. Submission is primarily an attitude of the heart and spirit. To symbolize this attitude, we encourage the practice of men bearing their heads and women covering their heads for prayer and worship, Stressing short hair for men and long hair for women. 
We accept the integrity of brothers and sisters who have differing views of these practices and affirm their sincere desire to be faithful to the Lord and his word. This is why when you come to church, we don't require you as a female to be covered or a male to be uncovered for that matter, I guess. We don't require you. It gives me the freedom to teach uh, what I think is as clearly as I can, as I did today on where I stand on the topic so that uh, hopefully you don't feel like I'm beating you over the head and saying, if you're not doing this, then you are on my bad side because you are not. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Submission is primarily an attitude of the heart. I've seen, you've all heard this phrase, but it's really true. I have seen many women who have physical coverings on their head who were not very submitted. And I've seen many women who did not have a physical covering that were submitted. I've seen many men who had their heads uncovered physically that were not the head, were not taking authority. And I've seen men who have had their heads covered occasionally and were actually the authority in their household. What I want for each of us to do is to spend time with the Lord ourselves and find out, do I understand God's word that way? And how can I best show my submission to what God has laid out? I told you, I think you can, but you have to come there yourself. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your word. I am fully, 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 fully aware that I don't have a perfect understanding of your word. But I'm also fully aware that your Holy Spirit has many, many times before faithfully helped me to teach something, even some things that I don't understand or some things that I wish weren't there. Lord, I want to be very clear. If there are errors in what I have said, I pray that you would strike them from the record and if necessary, bring them to my mind so that I can uh, publicly say that. But if there are things that come from your word and your heart and are true, I hope that there's plenty of us in this room who say, God, by your grace, help me to be obedient to what your word teaches. Lord, in the end, we want to follow you. We want to glorify you. We want to be submitted to you. No matter how we choose to work this out, or no matter what we think this has to say, we want to be submitted to you. And I'm thankful for the brothers and sisters here in this church body that are here week in and week out that I believe in many ways are following, are submitted to you. I'm grateful for that. I ask for your blessing on us as a body. I would pray that you would continue to help us to walk faithfully, even if it means being completely against culture. In fact, maybe especially so, Father. It's clear from your word that our kingdom is not here. It's clear that there's many things that are upside down about the way you do things versus what we do as a normal thing in our society. Perhaps none of those are more clear than this. Father, if there's hearts here who today want to live that out, I pray that they would do it in sincerity and from the right place. But I would pray that they would do it. I know it, it makes women feel different. I know many times it makes men not be okay with having their wives covered for what it looks like, for having them be different, for having the, getting the stares when you go out in public. And Father, I pray that you would just strike that pride down on us by your grace, that we can be submitted to you. Again, if our hearts are there in that place, that we would be willing and able to be faithful to you. And Lord, I'm so grateful that you... <laughs> In my life, I've seen you have so much grace towards me. Things that I should have clearly seen when I was younger that I just took me years to get there. And, 
God, you've just been faithful and full of grace. You remind me of it over and over again. You bring me to this place. And I know that's how you want us to be. Give us a, give us a true love for each other. Help us to be united as a body. I praise you. I thank you in Jesus' name.